Amen. Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. We've been making our way. In John chapter 13, we know uh, this chapter, going all the way through the 17th chapter, is really, uh, uh, really encompasses a very short period of time, really just hours, that the, Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room sharing that Last Supper, and Jesus also instituting um, the Lord's Supper, which is different from the Passover. We know the Passover was something that was traditional for them, commemorating that event when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and the death angel passing over and any door that had the blood of the lamb on the lentil and the doorpost of inside the house, they were, they were free and, and safe from the death angel that would pass over. And the firstborn of those who didn't have that on their door, the firstborn of every child, of every, of every family, of every beast, of every animal would die. But Jesus did something that evening in the Last Supper, that last Passover meal that he would have. He did something different, and that's he instituted his supper where he would actually take the bread and the cup, which we're going to take today. And he, he tore the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the New Covenant, the New Testament, the blood of the New Testament, Jesus' blood. And he would institute this before he would actually go to the cross. Do you remember? That must be the Lord. <laughs> Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and there was an, a moment where he might have been let go? Right? Remember when, you know, the Pilate was like, I see nothing wrong in this man. And, you know, I, I, he was determined to let him go. And do you notice that Jesus wasn't frantic? He knew that this was the time. He knew that this was the time that he was to go to the cross, pay the penalty for our sins, and it had to be this time. It had to be. Not another year later. No, this was the time. And Jesus was completely nonplussed by Pilate's seeming ambivalence to Jesus. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't concerned that he was going to get off the hook. It was for this purpose that he came, right? He was born to die. He wasn't born, he came and, and, and saved us through his blood on the cross, but he was born with a purpose. The prophets had foretold it for hundreds of years, a few thousand years, that he would come for this very purpose. So Jesus knew what was coming. He didn't look forward to it. He despised it, but he knew it had to be done. It had to be done. And so when we look at John 13, through 17, it encompasses those few hours that he had with his disciples the night before he would be betrayed and um, the authorities would come and arrest him. And you remember last week we looked at the first uh, 17 verses of chapter 13 and we saw Jesus just acting or playing the part of, of a servant, which is what he was and is. He never came to serve himself, he came to serve others. And he came to give the example for us that we could be those examples to one another. And see, so many religious leaders today and gurus in the, in the East, you know, they want you to follow them, but they're not willing to do what they're asking you to do. And neither can they really do what Jesus, there's no one who could do what Jesus did. And yet he, as the example, the prototype, the, the logos of God, the very representation of God, he went ahead for us like a good shepherd. He went before us and he gave the example. And as he washed the disciples' feet that night, he was giving a wonderful example that, hey, guys, listen, I'm God of the whole universe. You know that I'm the Messiah, that I am the Word incarnate. And yet I'm willing to come around and wash your nasty, ugly, filthy, stinking feet. And let me tell you, those fishermen... I've been around fishermen in Florida. They're walking around in sandals. They got fish guts all over. They got barbed, you know, hooks in the, you know, in their in their flip flops, and they got just layers of stuff. And they just, you know, just ugly, slime, yellow, green. And Jesus is going to wash these men's feet. He says, I've, "Do you know what I've done for you? I've done this as an example for you, that you ought to love." 
and that you ought to serve one another. And that's what he did, right? But he also said something very interesting. He says, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, verse 14, and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. And I love that. He is the wonderful example. In all points, tested as you and I were, tempted as you and I were and are, yet without sin. There's nothing that you are going through right now or will, or will go through that Jesus hasn't already been tempted and tried in. Yes, even temptation and lust and sin. He was tempted in every point but was without sin. He saw it, he recognized it, and he turned away from it. It's a difference. Being tempted is not a sin. What sin is when you give into it. When you give into it, some people get condemned. Well, I, was, I felt tempted. Well, everybody's tempted. What'd you do with that temptation? Did you drop to your knees and pray to God, or did you cave in? If you cave in, then you've sinned. Right? But notice what he says. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And notice, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, it's not, just, it's not enough to just know You've got to be willing to do. Because once we know, isn't it very natural for us to want to do? I mean, once we really know, once the search is over, you and I have searched. Before you came to Christ, maybe you tried Buddhism. Maybe you tried Hinduism. Probably nobody here. But, you know, you tried all these different things. Maybe you went to the Jehovah's Witness. You went to the Watchtower. You went to the, Joe, the Kingdom Hall. You went to, you know, you went out to Salt Lake City and put on the holy underwear, you know, and did the whole Mormon thing. You know, you did all these things, and, and, and you had no peace. There was no joy. There was no assurance of salvation. And yet, when you came to Christ, the search is over. There's nowhere else to go. Peter said it. Where else can we go, Lord? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. There's no place we can go. There's no other channel we can turn to with our remote. We've come to the channel, 777, and we found you, and we are hook, line, and sinker. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And more than good. He's more than good. He's not just good. He's more than good. He's awesome. Somebody say hallelujah. I feel a little Pentecostal this morning. Yes. Yes, it's good. And now look what happens. Now, we're just going to read through chapter, or excuse me, verse 18, 18 down through 30, and then we'll get right into it. But notice... He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit, and he testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And then Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him if it was him who, uh, it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus, notice that, these little details, okay, because we're going to look at this again. Notice these little details. John must have been really in proximity to Jesus, right? And Peter was not so much so. Leaning on the back of Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and then Simon Peter therefore motioned him, asking of who it was that he spoke, and then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread, when I have dipped it, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And now after the piece of bread, Satan, notice, entered him, entered Judas. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one on the table knew for what reason he, had, he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things, that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and noticed it was night. It was not only physically dark at this time, but it was also 
darkness in the, in the heart of Judas. It was his hour of opportunity. It was the devil's hour to snuff out the life of the Son of God. And again, no surprise to Jesus. But this one, this morning I've labeled the, the service, the message, Itu Brute, or Itu Judas. And certainly this is a, a quotation from William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, where Julius Caesar said to Brutus, a very loyal friend, remember, as Brutus came to his trusted friend, Julius Caesar, and began to stab him with the knife. And Julius Caesar cried out, You too, Brute? You too, Brutus? And Jesus had a very close friend, Judas Iscariot. At least Jesus, on his part, he gave Judas every opportunity but being betrayed by a loyal friend is one of the most hurtful things that a person can experience. Have you experienced that betrayal of a friend, a, a best friend, maybe even a family member, a spouse, maybe even your church, someone in your church? It happens all the time. It just doesn't happen here. It happens in every single building that people are gathered this Sunday morning all throughout this country. To be hurt by someone, to be betrayed is one of the most hurtful things it's a, t a cut that goes very deep. And Judas was a very popular name because in the second century B.C., there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus who threw off the, he, he led a, a band of Jewish men and revolted against Rome, and it was effective for a season. And his name was on hero status. Everyone named their child Judas, and perhaps Judas was named Judas for that very purpose. He was named after a hero, but after he betrayed Jesus, Jesus, nobody named their son Judas anymore. It became a name that was no longer very popular. But Judas himself, as he is really in this section that we're looking at today, he is one of the main figures in this passage, in this Last Supper. And we know that Jesus chose Judas he chose him. He knew in advance that it was he who would be the one who would betray him, but Jesus gave him every opportunity to turn. There is no game playing here. There's no role. I, I, I remember talking to someone one time, and they said, well, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas was to do this, so he was just filling, a, he was filling the role. You know, he was just going through the motions, you know, reading the script, so to speak. No, that wasn't the case at all. Judas had no idea what was happening. He was just being led by his own heart, his own evil heart. And be careful of movies around this time of year or, you know, uh, around, uh, you know, the time of Jesus' death, you know, Good Friday, and you, you watch movies, and they portray Judas as this, you know, um, this uh, character who's been misunderstood. No. <laughs> you got to get that out of your mind. Judas was not that. He was, a, he was a liar. He was a thief. He's exactly who the Bible says he is. Don't let any movie director paint him any different way. Yes, he was unknown. I mean, uh, the, the, the other disciples didn't know that he would be the one. But in his heart, see, that's the thing we can't see. You know, we can, we can put on the picture. We, we can have a pretty face. We can paint the barn. We can do all these things. But inside is what God is looking at. And what is your inside? I can tell you Judas is inside. His inside was darkened. His heart was darkened. And yet on the outward, nobody knew what was going on inside. That's the danger, isn't it, for us? We have this ability to put on a facade. And he did. He put on a facade. He fooled all the disciples. But there was one who was not fooled, and that was Jesus. Jesus was not fooled by Judas. But notice in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Jesus, he chose him. He knew this about him that he went up onto a mountain and called to him those he, he himself wanted, and they came to him, and then he appointed twelve that they may be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And he gave them power, notice, to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And he lists the names of them, you know, Simon and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, you know, um, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, Alphaeus, and Judas Iscariot. 
who also betrayed him. So we know that this gospel was written after the fact. Do you see that? Because Mark wrote this gospel after these events had happened. Yes, even Judas. That's why he's named last there. He deserves to be last because of his treachery. But Jesus was well aware of what Judas was capable of. And ultimately what he was going to do, it was no surprise. For the Lord himself had written the scriptures that, that David was inspired by. As David was writing these psalms in 1000 B.C., a thousand years before Jesus would even be born, what do we read in Psalm 41, verse 9? David is writing about Ahithophel, a man who was a very close confidant of his, a counselor of David, a man highly respected in Israel, and yet this man, who we believe is Bathsheba's grandfather, he is the one who betrayed David. And so as David is recording for this, this is also a prophecy of what was going to happen to Jesus. It says in verse 9 of Psalm 41, Even my own familiar friend, David says by the Spirit, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, how more, much more intimate can this be? Because Jesus is now at the Last Supper, and he's feeding Judas this bread. He's feeding it with his hand. He's putting it right into his mouth. Who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In Psalm 55, for it was not an enemy who reproached me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hated me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, and certainly Judas was no equal to Jesus, but they were on humanity, they were on, the, on, a, on a similar level. He says, you know, but it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance, the one who I trusted in, the one who I gave great responsibility. I gave you power to go out and to, the, to heal the sick along with the others. And I gave you the power to cast out demons. Would the God that you would have cast the demon out of yourself? Right? Because Judas was possessed at a certain time by Satan himself, not a demon. But it was you, a man, my equal. We took sweet counsel together. We walked into the house of, the God, house of God together. In Psalm 69, reproach has broken my heart, David says, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. And this is almost sounding like Jesus in his agony and his passion as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. A lot of these things are very, very, very hauntingly similar and no doubt because they are inspired of God and he says, they also gave me gall for my food. Did that happen on the cross? You better believe it. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That sounds kind of peculiar. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. This is going to sound very familiar as we look at a passage in Acts here shortly. Acts chapter 1, verse 20. But going on now in Psalm 109, there's another psalm. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. Was Judas a liar? Yes, he was. He lied. He, told the, he was acting as if he was playing another part when he was with the disciples, but he was somebody else on the inside that he wasn't exposing. That's why all the disciples were like, Judas is a great man. He was the last one, they thought, that would betray Jesus. They all looked at themselves. Could it be me? Could it be me? Could it be me? And I bet Judas, who was the guilty party, didn't say anything. They've also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. I love that. <laughs> That's a good, good thing for us to consider too. Thus have they rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser underline that word. If you're actually in uh, Psalm 109 and you're looking at verse 6 there, set a wicked man over him and let an accuser, that word accuser is literally in the Hebrew, Satan. That's what it means. 
That's literally what the word is in the original language. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Meaning, let another take his charge or his office. And what happened when Judas hung himself? The disciples tried to replace him with Matthias. Somebody else took his office. But more importantly, I believe the Apostle Paul. He was the one who fulfilled that spot. And we know that these psalms are prophetic because in Psalm, one, uh, Psalm, in, in Psalm 109, verse 8, and why? Because the Holy Spirit tells us. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, notice what it says. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of them was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry, an office in a sense. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, because he, he hung himself, so at some point, the noose may have, whatever it was he hung himself, may have come loose or the branch broke, we don't really know, but he fell headlong and burst open in the middle. And here's a wonderful tidbit for you if you've already eaten breakfast. And all his entrails gushed out. That's kind of nice. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Here it is. So Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, associates these things. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, and we already read Psalm 69, let his dwelling place be desolate, and no one live in it. And another verse, let another take his office. That was what we just read in Psalm 109. We know that those psalms are prophetic of Judas, this man of sin, this son of perdition, as Jesus called him. And you know what's interesting to me? Is the fact that the Lord allowed Judas to have the same opportunities the other disciples have. He chose him to be one of the twelve, to be with him and to learn of him. He also caused him to go out two by two with the others to heal the sick and to cast out demons. He also, Judas, saw the many miracles that Jesus did. He was eyewitness to these things. And on top of all those things, God, Jesus, gave to Judas special honors. <laughs> he was given the great responsibility to be the group's accountant. He carried the money bag and he was stealing from it and Jesus knew about it. And he continued to let him be the treasurer. And not only that, he was made the guest of honor at the Last Supper. His seat at that table that night, he was the guest of honor. Isn't that interesting? And not only that, but Jesus took a piece of bread and he put it, he dipped it in the sop and he gave it to the guest of honor. And that's the greatest thing a guest or a host of a, of a, a, a gathering like this could do. That was a symbol of friendship, at least on Jesus' part. It gives new meaning to the word love your enemies, doesn't it? Because in Matthew, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your fathers in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Isn't that amazing? This is such a great lesson for me because if you're like me right now, it is so easy to get, to, to get your, your emotions to just get uh, riled up with all the things that are going on in our world right now, the things that are going on in politics. If we're not careful, church, we can grow hateful and spiteful and we can say nasty things. I'm appalled at some of the things I see that Christians are saying, appalled. And God is appalled by it too. And he's appalled, let me tell you the truth about something about my own self. He's appalled by the things that sometimes I say privately in my own home and the things that I'm musing on in my own heart. I'm not going to lie to you. That is the truth. That's the truth. And he will hold us accountable for those things how much more now do we need to be loving and to be that example? See, if it were me at that table, 
And if you were at that table and you knew that he was about to betray you and you were going to hung and, and die the most painful death, and not only a most physically painful death, but guess what? Crucifixion was one of the worst forms of capital punishment. It was horrible. And then on top of that, try adding the sin of the world on your shoulders on top of the physical, physical pain. Now there's a, spiritual, a whole spiritual element that none of us can imagine that Jesus took upon himself. That, that, I believe, was the blow from God that no one else could do. They can, he can receive blows from man. A lot of people, thousands of people, have received blows from man at, on, the, on the cross, but no one has taken the sin of the world. And for God himself, God the Father, to look upon his son and look at him and say, and to walk away. That's literally what happened on the cross. He was despised, he was rejected, a man of sorrows. Right? That's what happened. Prior to the passage that we are looking at this morning, Judas had already conspired. He had already conspired. Chronologically, Judas had already done part of the dirty deed already before he even stepped foot in that upper room. It tells us in Matthew 26 that one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And then it gets even more spooky because in Luke 22, it says this. It says, The feast of the Passover drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him. It sounds like a great group of guys. The religious mafia. They sought how he might kill them, for they feared the people. And then notice this, underline this, if you're, if you're actually opened up to Luke 22, in verse 3. What does it say? Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot. He came from the town Iscariot. Many Judases, but he came from Iscariot. Satan entered this man, not a demon, not a demon, Satan himself. I cannot imagine being possessed by a demon, much less Satan himself. And don't you find it interesting that Jesus, and this was before the upper room incident that we're reading about now. Can you imagine being in the upper room and the only one that was cognizant that Satan was in someone was Jesus. And yet Jesus was right there next to him, feeding him bread. Showing to him, Judas, I love you right to the end. And you're culpable for what you're, you're about to do. You are culpable for what you're doing, what you've already done, what you've already conspired, what you're going to do. I hold you accountable, and you will be held accountable for it. Woe to the man. It would have been better if he hadn't even been born, right? And so Satan entered Judas, who was numbered among the twelve, and so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And this all happened before this evening. So let's look at verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you, Jesus says. I know whom I have chosen. He knows whom he has chosen. The Lord knows all of us, and he has a plan for each of our lives. Just as he has a plan for those disciples in that upper room, he has a plan for us as well. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Isn't that a wonderful thought to get carried away and to know that God has a plan for me? He has a plan for you. He's got a place for you. And the church is, is big enough, and, and, and this world is big enough for all the Christians to be serving him and doing what he wants them to do. I know whom I have chosen, Jesus said. He knows the gifts and the callings that he has given to each of us, and they are without repentance. I love what he tells Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry. He said this, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. So much for the, uh, the abortion stuff that's going on in New York State. Well, it's got to be 18 weeks. It's going to be you know, right up to the time of birth you can kill the child. Hey, guess what? God knew you before you were even in the womb. So back that whole thing up before conception even happened, and God knows that human being. Isn't that startling? <laughs> I would love for all the states in America to say, you know what, this is, the, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take that verse, and we're going to make that, we're going to stand that up in front of the Supreme Court, and they will bow to Almighty God. They will bow to Him. That scripture alone has enough power to crumble all, all their wicked deeds 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. But notice, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Again, this was what we looked at in Psalm 41. And um, the bottom of a feet, when he says you've lifted up your heel against me, this is one of the most filthy things, and I, I precluded that in the message this morning. The feet of people in this time, because they didn't have nice leather shoes like you and I have, they had sandals, and they walked around dusty, and, and they stepped in the mud and refuse and everything else on the road, and their feet were horrible looking. And so to expose the bottom of your feet in this culture was tantamount to treachery. It, it was like the, the worst thing you could possibly do. I mean, Emily Post would be a, a, a astounded at the lack of etiquette. There's a book called Broken Bread by Jay McCarl. I would, I would encourage you, if you don't have this book, to get it because it talks a lot about the stuff I've been talking about, about the placement of everybody around this table. But one of the things he said, he says, during one of my Israel tours, he says, I escorted a small group of friends to Jerusalem's colossal church of the Holy Sepulchre, a huge and ancient edifice believed by many to be uh, built atop the place where Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I really don't believe that. I think it's somewhere else. But anyway... Um, the central feature of this enormous church is a small rock-hewn tomb preserved in the Great Rotunda, a relic which has been revered by Christians throughout the centuries as the actual grave where Jesus was buried, etc. And he says, My friends soon slipped into a long queue of Nigerian pilgrims who were waiting for a look inside the tomb. But since I had visited this place many times and, I, and my feet were um, beginning to protest... I decided instead to look for a place where I could sit and read my Bible. I soon located a familiar wooden bench, hard but welcoming, wedged into the stony alcove across from the entrance. And I was just beginning to enjoy this momentary reprieve from our grueling tour of the old city when loud and incoherent shouting interrupted my reading. It was all directed at a dark-haired European woman seated to my left. In front of her stood a, a tall, black-bearded man clad in a long gray robe and capped with a brimless stovepipe hat. He was a priest, one of the custodians of the holy tomb, and he was very unhappy, railing on the woman and pointing, and neither of us recognized the strange language of the angry priest, and he made motions to him to signify her bewilderment at his umbrage. <laughs> Realizing that, he could not, uh, that she could not understand, the man gestured, crossing and then uncrossing his rigid arms, and then he pointed at her feet. And I looked down, he said, and I saw that she was wearing an elegant pair of black, low-heeled walking shoes, but her ankles were crossed. Her relaxed and modest pose had allowed her feet to angle ever so slightly upward, exposing the soles of her shoes. And so this is this is the idea behind this. When And it was an affront to be in this holy place, right? I mean, a little awkward, but, you know, nonetheless, that was the culture. That was the, even today, you know, they, there's certain places when you go into Israel, you got to wear a certain clothing, and they won't let you in if you're showing a little too much. But to lift your heel up, to expose the bottom of your foot, the most unclean part of your body in that culture, was the greatest shove in your face and disrespect. And so when Jesus said, "My, this one who has lifted up his heel against me, but notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19 back in our text. He says, I tell you before it comes, underline that, before it comes, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And this statement of Jesus fits the narrative of the entire gospel. Because these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, the Bible, and you know this, is the only holy book that declares to know the future 100% accurate. It's the only holy book, it's the only book that can declare the end from the beginning, that can say and, and, and share things that have, haven't come to pass as if they already had come to pass you know, Jesus and God, they live in eternity. They dwell in eternity, outside of time. He has the ability, like a blimp going over Macy's Day Parade on Thanksgiving Day, the blimp can see the end of the parade and the beginning of the parade, but the people on the ground, all they can see is the marchers and the trumpeteers and the, and the people waving the baton as they go by. They're right there in front of them. They can't see the end from the beginning, but God can. He can see that. He's eternal. 
And he's even much more than that because he knows every person in that parade. He knows exactly what they are thinking, where they came from. He knows every life experience, every thought, every word that will be spoken. See, this is who God is. And he tells them in advance so that they might know. And here in verse 19, Jesus is giving his disciples to hold him accountable to the claims that he has made of his deity. And what do I mean by that? In Deuteronomy, God, speaking to Moses, says, I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their brethren. Who is he speaking of? Jesus. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses. It's not going to come for many years, but I'm going to raise up a prophet. His name's going to be Jesus. I will raise up a prophet from you, like you, from among the, their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that, whatever, that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. <laughs> That's a pretty stiff penalty, wouldn't you think? That prophet will die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. And see, if Jesus is who he said he was, he can tell them in advance what's coming, and it will happen. You can bet everything on it. You can bet your very life on it. Do you bet your life on this? When he says that something's going to come to pass, do you believe it? When he says, I will prepare, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back for you, do you believe that? I mean, we have to really search our hearts about this stuff because, folks, we're coming down to the end. We are coming down to the end. It's time for the Christian church to believe in this again and stop teaching sermons that are 15 minutes talking about current events. This has to be the diet. This has to be the thing. This has to be what we look for. This is the word of God. It's not just some, you know, Harlequin novel. And it's alive. It's alive. And we're going to read it, and we're going to understand it more as we go along. And I tell you, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to read. I'm loving it. Do you love it? If you don't love it, and be honest, if you don't love it, if it's boring to you, pray. <laughs> because, listen, God wants to make it very, he wants to open it to you. He wants to make you love his word. I love his word. I can't get enough of it. I have to pry myself away from it. That's all I want to do. I want to read the Word of God. And more importantly, as I read it, I need to do it. I need to do it. It's one thing getting it in my head, but now I've got to appropriate it in practical ways in my life. I want to do that. And you know, if that's your desire too, he's going to do it. He's going to do it, and it's going to be a process. Don't get discouraged. Don't get befuddled and don't get tripped up because he wants to do it in you as much as you. He wants to do it more than you actually do. And so he is right there with you. I love Jesus for that. I love the Spirit of God, don't you? I love that about him. And notice in verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Do you see the wonderful unity there? The Father, the servant, and the one whom the servant is ministering to, it's all one. What a great unity that is. Enjoy the unity of Christ. Enjoy the unity of this fellowship. I pray that we all would enjoy that. Notice verse 21, And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit, and he testified and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Jesus made Judas accountable even while he, before he finished his, his evil deed, G, G, Jesus made him accountable for the satanic plot that he was hatching. It says in Matthew 26, as they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you, and the, this very evening that he's speaking to them in another gospel, he says, uh, assuredly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, how many of the disciples were really paying attention and heard this? We don't really know. I would imagine it was just a few around where Jesus was at because they were talking and fellowshipping and hanging out. Some of them heard, but they didn't understand. And maybe they just disregarded it and continued talking. And we don't really know. It's kind of interesting. But Jesus said, the Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him. But notice, here's the accountability. 
And here's what Judas heard from Jesus' own mouth. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who was betraying, notice that, the current, the present tense, he was betraying him. He already started the betrayal. Going back in time, maybe a day, maybe hours, he'd already started that process. He was betraying. Notice the continuous present tense. (laughs) It would have been better for that man. And then Judas, who, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said, it is as you said. And John, being on the right side of Jesus, could hear that. John was on Jesus' right side. Judas, the guest of honor, was on his left side. And as John was reclining up next to Jesus, he could overhear everything Judas and Jesus were talking about. That's why it's in his gospel. And then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he had spoke. Again, this bewilderment is really amazing. The only one who really knew what was happening was Jesus. The other disciples thought, you know, Judas is a great guy. He's one of us. He's carrying the bag. He's the guest of honor. Jesus must really love him. Man, I wished I was the guest of honor. So the last person they were thinking who would betray him would be Judas. And so uh, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. You know who that was? It was John. It was John. None other than John, and we know this because this triclinium that they would be at, this table that would only be a number of inches high, it would be this this arrangement as they sat around the table. John being on the left side, the very first one, the bodyguard, Jesus being the host, right to the right of John, and then to the right of Jesus even, the guest of honor. That would be the place of the guest of honor, and that was Judas. And how could John make such a statement like this? The one whom Jesus loved was leaning on the breast. How could he make that comment? Very simply because he loved the Lord with all of his heart. He could make that comment because he loved Jesus. He loved and was willing to receive. Notice, he not only loved Jesus, but he's willing to receive the love of Jesus. Are you that type of person? Do you love the Lord and are you willing to receive his love? Even though none of us deserve it? Some people refuse to love Uh, be loved by God because they're hung up on the fact that they don't deserve it. They're still dwelling on something that they did back in 1975 or something that was done to them. They feel horrible, they feel dirty, they feel unworthy, and therefore they they refuse to receive the love of God. You know, that's part of it, giving and receiving. You give love and you receive love. God loved us first, and then we love him in return. Are you willing to receive the love of God? Are you still wallowing in something that happened back in the old days? Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was 1975. Maybe it was 1969 or 63. Something you did, something that happened to you still haunts you in the dark recesses of your heart and the hidden places in your heart. You're still thinking about it, and you're like, I can't believe I did that. I'm so ashamed, Lord. The Lord's like, I know. You know I still love you. I'm not angry. You've confessed it. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things are past. New things. All things have become new. All that old stuff. I don't even want to look at it again. It's it's done. It's you you. It's it's done. Why are you looking at it when I have chosen to cast it away from me into the sea of forgetfulness, into the sea of non-remembrance? I can perfectly forget. And I choose to, based on the merits of my son's blood on the cross, I will never look at it again. So why are you continuing to sift through that stuff and get condemned all over again? Receive the love of God. That's how Peter, or excuse me, that's how John could say, the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved him because he loved Jesus. Or let me say that, uh, John loved Jesus because Jesus first loved him. He was able to receive that love And I don't think for a minute that John knew, thought that it was him, but he was humble enough to say, Lord, is it me? He didn't have any confidence in himself, even though he loved the Lord. I believe that the greater we love and the greater that we know we are loved is at least one of the keys to a blessed relationship with Christ. To know that we're loved and then to love him in return. So Simon Peter, verse 24, motioned to him to ask who it was whom he spoke, because remember, Peter's on the other side of the table. He's like, John, 
ask him what he means by that. And John's going, ask him, ask him on. Who is it? And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, John, leaning on his left elbow, his back facing Jesus, he leans back and he said, Lord, who is it? Who is it? How wonderful to have a clear conscience. A conscience is such a precious thing. We should be careful not to violate that conscience that God has given us. Our conscience can either be clear, we can have a clear conscience because we have peace. Because we have the peace with God, we now have the peace of God to have a clear conscience like John to just lean back on Jesus' chest and know that it wasn't him, but he's like, Lord, who is it? And he would later say, Lord, is it, you know, who is it? Who is it? The Bible says that, and, but you can have a clear conscience or you can have a seared conscience. The Spirit expressly speaks that in the latter times, the days that we're living in today, that some will depart from the faith. It's happening. There are empty chairs here because people have left. And we're not the only ones. There are many churches in this country, after the shaking of COVID and the shaking of everything else, the tree has been shaken and I'm not saying that all of them have fallen away. I'm not saying that. Please understand that. Do you understand that? I'm not saying that they have. There are some, but not all, right? Some have just gone somewhere else because they can't stand me. But some have just, they've, 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 they, 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 they can't take it anymore. And they've lost, they, they, the, the foundation wasn't there. And they've just fallen by the wayside, unfortunately. That's why we've got to reach out to them, love on them, encourage them. But there are some who have left because they're like, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. I'm done. And it's not just this fellowship. Every pastor I talk to, the same thing is happening in their churches as what's happening here. Same exact thing. It's amazing. It's a spiritual thing that's happening, folks. Are we awake to it? But a clear conscience so wonderful, but a seared conscience is one that goes beyond feeling. The heart is no longer convicted when it sins because when it's seared, nothing is able to get in and the defilement from within is not able to be purged. I think of it like a nice steak. When you take that ribeye or that porterhouse out of the package of Wegmans, you know, and it's got that nice little seal on it and you open it up and it's all bloody and it's a big mess and you slap it on the grill and you put it on high because you have to put the grill on high, right, to sear both sides for at least two minutes, right, before you turn the heat down. So anyway, you, you sear that steak. And what, what happens? It, it seals the pores of that steak so that the juices inside don't escape. That's what makes it juicy. And then it cooks. And then you flip it over on the other side on high for a few minutes to sear it as well. And that, those juices on the inside don't escape. You don't want those to escape. And see, that, leave it up to a man to think like this, right? A steak. But the idea is similar. When your conscience is seared, that's what happens. The putrefying mess inside can't get out. Nothing can come in. It just stays inside. And that's why we need to be careful. But he said, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I have given a piece of bread that when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. And again, this was a great honor for Judas to have this. And notice, now after the piece of bread, notice again, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. This is at least the second time Satan entered him. Maybe he was already there and just... You know, we, we don't really know. It doesn't really matter. The main thing is that Judas was possessed by the devil himself. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, by those, notice, there's still some doubt about what Jesus spoke and, 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 and what he said and what he meant by it. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. You know, they, they, they didn't really know. But having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately and it was night. It was night. Evil things happen in the darkness. Most evil deeds are done in darkness, but not all evil deeds are done in darkness. Some are done, done in broad daylight right in front of our face. You know, I was thinking of 9-11, the morning of 9-11. Remember that Tuesday morning? It was beautifully, the sky was 
blue, clear, beautiful sky at fall morning. And yet, sun was coming up. It was a beautiful day, one of the nicest days. And yet, one of the most evil things in our country happened on that day when all around us, things looked great. Looked like the beginning of a perfect day. And yet, one of the most evil things happened on our soil. So when he had gone out, verse 31, Jesus said to him, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I, I, I shall be with you a little longer, but you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. <laughs> and where was Jesus going? Well, he was going to the cross. He was going to go into the grave, neither of which they had gone and couldn't go, but the place that they really couldn't go yet, because they would seek him, but they would not find him. Jesus, remember, 40 days after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, it wasn't until 40 days later that he ascended to the Father. The place where he originated from, he ascended back to the Father. And Jesus said to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Notice the example, as I loved you, that you also may love one another. In other words, follow the model, guys, that I've shown to you. Jesus doesn't expect to treat us to treat people better than what he would treat him. He's the master. His standard is the standard that we need to uh, rise to. We need to rise to his standard, not bring his standard down to us. We, man does that all the time in religion. They bring God down, and God says, no, keep me up, and you come up. <laughs> we need to come up to him. We don't want to drag him down. Last thing I want is a God who looks like me, who acts like me. A God that will go out drinking with me. A God that is willing to, you know, talk dirty jokes with me. I don't want a God like that. Most people do. Some people do. But I want a God who's so far above that, man, I'm just like jaws dropping all the time. Hitting the ground, dragging along the dust, man. I got like a mouthful of dirt. Because I'm amazed at who he is. Aren't you amazed at who he is? Can I hear an amen? All right, I know you guys are... It's a tough time of year, isn't it? Things are starting to get a little interesting. He says, I've loved you. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're only right. By this, verse 35, all will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you agape one another for one another. This is how the world, this is how they're going to know that you're my disciples, by your love. And, um, and notice, this is how the world will know, is if we love one another. The question is, are we loving one another the way the Lord would have us to? I share with you a lyric of a song. It says, love that is seen means much more than love that's just heard. Isn't it true? Love that's, on, that's being demonstrated in a very practical way, that means a lot more than just saying, hey, I love you. But love, real love, true love, is love that actually does something. It doesn't just say it. It does say it, but it also backs it up with the walk. It doesn't just talk the talk, but it walks the walk. And that's what Jesus did. And we don't want our love to grow cold. In the last days, the, because wickedness will abound, Lawlessness abounding, the love of many will grow cold. We don't want that to happen to us. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. It's a very natural question for him to ask. Peter said, Lord, how can I follow you now? Why can't I follow you down? Follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter, so full of self-confidence, didn't understand his own humanity. And if you're like me, I, I think I know who I am, but the truth of the matter is when, I'm, when circumstances come into my life, I find out that I'm really not all that I thought I was. 
And God has a way of doing that to each of us. And he does it so that we might know. He doesn't do it to harm us. He doesn't do it to break our hearts, in, in a sense. But I, I need to know, what am I really, who am I? Who am I, who am I in him? And the Lord's going, Rob, the only way you're going to know who you really are and what you really are made of is when I bring these storms, when I bring these challenges, when I bring these, consequ- these circumstances in your life, and you're going to respond, and I know what you're, you're going to respond, and I love you for everything that you're doing, but you've got to know where you stand. You've got to know where your conviction is. Where is your conviction, Mr. Kellogg? <laughs> Say, Lord, I have no clue. And he goes, well, I know. I'm going to allow something in your life that's going to bring that to the surface because I love you. You need to know. And then you'll have every confidence in me, not your own strength. And what a, the thing I find, and then Jesus answered him finally the verse, uh, last verse, Will you lay down your life for my sake, Jesus said to him? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow to you have denied me three times. Look at John chapter 18 today and read through it. You will see... Peter denying the Lord, not betraying him, but denying him. Isn't it funny? Actually, it's not funny at all. But I think it's interesting in chapter 13 that we're looking at, Jesus exposes two people. He exposes Judas first because he's the one who's going to betray him, the one who was filled with Satan himself. And then he's also going to draw out another disciple who was very self-confident, Peter. He was going to draw him out as well. And Peter wouldn't betray Jesus, he would deny him. There's a difference. He didn't betray him, he just denied him three times. And again, look at John chapter 18 and you'll see these denials of Peter. And it really is a bitter pill, isn't it? To think that you're something. Jesus was the one who, or um, uh, Peter was the one who boasted, Lord, I'll never leave you. Everyone can leave you, but I won't leave you. And Jesus said, you know, before this evening is through, Peter, you're going to deny me three times that you even knew me. And he's like, that's not going to happen. And what happened in the garden? Peter did try to defend him, you know, his own honor, his own thing. What did he do? He took out a sword. And I don't believe he was looking to cut off Malchus's ear. I think he took that sword and he went back. He was going to take his head off. And that man, very fortunately, glanced and took his ear off. I think Peter was going for the head because he wanted to prove to the Lord his devotion to him. And the Lord put away your sword, Peter. And he reaches down and he grabs the ear and he grabs Malchus. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? Loving his enemy. Loving his enemy. Boy, that's a... I find it interesting, and I didn't plan this. But right at the end of this chapter, verse 38 of this chapter, immediately after that, you know what happens chronologically? The very next thing that happens is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Communion, where Jesus instituted that at that Passover meal, that last Passover meal. And so as the worship team comes on up, this is what happened very next after verse 38. Judas wasn't there. Judas wasn't at. He was at the Last Supper, but when Jesus took the bread and the cup, Judas had already left. He was not part of this. And you and I have this opportunity to remember the blood and the body of Christ that was broken and given on our behalf. And so as the worship team uh, begins to worship, if you would, just come up of your own volition, grab the, the bread and the cup, and bring it back to your seat, and we'll take it together, okay? And after verse 38, it says for us in Matthew 26, verse 26, that's the very next thing that happens. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, or the new testament, which is shed for you, for, the, for many, for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
when Jesus returns for the church and we're in glory with him, we're going to have it with him in heaven. I'm looking forward to that day. Let's take this Hokins. Let's take the bread and the cup. And why don't we stand together and let's pray. And uh, I pray that God would encourage you this week as you're making final preparations for the times together with your family and friends that it would be the sweetest time ever that this Christmas would be the very best Christmas in spite of and in lieu of (laughs) all the things that are going on and the things that have rattled you, the things that have brought you to the end of yourself, the things that have maybe even frightened you. Pray that it would be the very best. Better than any other time in our history, may this Christmas be the best for you and your family. May the light of Christ fill us to overflowing. And may we sense his presence and sense his love and be so willing to be vessels for the master's use. Father, how we thank you. How we praise you for your goodness. And Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do and all that you've promised to do. Lord, you're the God who, you're the covenant keeper. You're the promise keeper. And Lord, we're thankful that we are your children. And thank you that we can just crawl up into your lap, God, and lay all of our cares, cast all of our cares before you and allow you to wipe the tears from our eyes. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.